0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to listen to the preaching of your word with uh, an ear for learning more about you, about your attributes, your works and your ways. To learn more about the Lord Jesus and the Gospel and also more about ourselves as sinners, but sinners that have been saved to serve you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, I said this morning that I would, uh, Lord willing, be preaching this afternoon about another aspect of the Reformed order of worship, this time the reading of the law of God, which has for many centuries been done in Reformed churches customarily and not just here but also around the world. Usually a passage from, uh, well, either the passage in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, those uh, summary passages of the Ten Commandments, but sometimes also uh, Matthew 22, the summary of the summary, uh, or other passages in the New Testament sometimes that have uh, portions of God's law. And this is, as I say, another aspect of Reformed worship that goes back a long, long way. It goes back to the Reformation, and again, especially to the Synod of Dort, which chose to follow Zwingli's practice, the Reformer Zwingli, his practice, and to make the reading of the law mandatory each week. Though, to be fair, uh, John Calvin didn't have the reading of uh, the law every week, but he certainly had it very regularly. Uh, Sometimes the people uh, sang it as well, so it wasn't always read. Uh, As I say, it wasn't every week, but it was certainly extremely frequently. Well, today we find more and more people becoming uncomfortable with this practice, And uh, that also includes in the Reformed churches of New Zealand, I suspect. And I have come across this too sometimes in our churches, not so commonly, but uh, I do hear it sometimes, that uh, the law is too legalistic and uh, we ought not to be legalistic. The only law we need to worry about today is the law of love, so we shouldn't be reading the Ten Commandments, not so regularly. Or others who say it might be all right occasionally, but it shouldn't focus on it so much. And then you have others who make a point, and there's some uh, validity to this point, and I'll come back to it later, and that is that whatever we do every week, and, or on a regular basis, and that includes the Apostles' Creed as well, uh, whatever we do, votum and salutation, blessing, all of those regular elements in our worship, there is a danger that we take it for granted, simply because we hear it over and over again. And the danger is then it's just water off a duck's back. Well, this afternoon I wanted to consider the reading of the law from the principles that we find here in Deuteronomy 9 and 10. And there are three things in particular I want to draw attention to out of this passage. First of all, the giving of the law, the way in which it was given. Secondly, the breaking of the law. And thirdly, the renewing of the law. The giving of it, the breaking of it by Israel, and then God's renewing of the law. As we consider first then the giving of the law to Israel, and when I say the law in this case, I'm talking especially about the Ten Commandments. So God gave lots of laws to his people. He didn't give them all uh, at this time on Mount uh, Horeb or Mount Sinai. He had actually given his people some laws as they were coming towards Mount Sinai and he gave them other laws afterwards as well. But the Ten Commandments, especially is the focus here, on those tablets of stone and already that shows the importance of it, that of all the laws God gave at various times the ones that were written on the tablets of stone were the Ten Commandments not all the others and the fact that they were the only ones inscribed on stone already tells us that there's some special uh, permanence there to them because that's the idea of something being written on stone moreover we see it in the fact that it is only these Ten Commandments written on stone that were said to be written by the finger of God, verse 10. That's also special. Uh, not, of course, a literal finger. Uh, God didn't have a literal finger. He is uh, spirit. But the language indicates, it implies, that God himself personally caused, in a very direct and immediate way, he caused these words to appear on the stone whereas the the rest of his law and scripture was given usually through somebody else, sure, somebody God was working in and with, as he inspired them to write those words, be it Moses or one of the New Testament writers. But in this case, written by his finger. And uh, you can find that in Deuteronomy 10, verses 2 and 4. It's also stated in Deuteronomy 10, sorry, 4, verse 13, and Exodus 32, verse 16. So God gave all the law but the Ten Commandments had a special place. And I want to suggest a few reasons for this. There's at least uh, three of them I can think of. Uh, One is that the Ten Commandments are especially what we sometimes call the moral law. And uh, that's not a term that's used as such in Scripture, although there may be some of the Old Testament language that reflects that idea the idea that here we have the abiding moral principles. Uh, Many other laws apply those principles. Some laws were given only for a specific time, like the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law. But these ones were the underlying moral principles behind all of the law, and they are moral principles that are abiding. And that also, by the way, is uh, much the idea when we say that something is written in stone the idea that it is abiding. So these principles underlie every other law and because of that we know that the, these principles apply to all of life and there is no area of life that you can't um, look at in light of these these laws in terms of how we are to live before God. There's uh, no area of life where the one or other of the Ten Commandments have nothing at all to say. And you can say that of no other part of God's law. In other words, there are no other passages that give us a moral summary that is relevant to all of the law and to all aspects of life. Except perhaps the summary of the summary in Matthew 22, that it all comes back to love of God and our neighbour as ourself, but that is very brief. Still important, but very brief. So there are many other passages in the New Testament also that give commandments, express God's commandments or apply the Ten Commandments. But there are only portions of God's law where it's only these two passages that uh, that give us the whole lot that applies to all of life. Uh, I'd like to suggest another reason in the um, the unique role of the Ten Commandments as we find that summarised in Exodus and Deuteronomy and that is the central role that they play in the covenant of grace. To such an extent that they are called, these tablets of the law are actually called the tablets of the covenant, verses 9 and 11. The covenant is, of course, a strategy that God uses to save his people from sin, ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. That strategy involves an oath-bound promise on God's part, that's what we mean by covenant, especially the word used in the Old Testament. And uh, so it includes these oath-bound promises, but also in the which in which it's given, it includes the obligations that follow from that. God has given us these great promises, how then shall we live the obligations upon the covenant people? And the covenant also includes, the covenant document includes uh, the gracious blessings that come to those who are obedient, and the curses that come for disobedience. But of all of the things that God could have written in stone to remind Israel of that covenant, it is the summary of those abiding principles, the summary of them, that's the one that's chosen. And of all the words that God could have placed in the Ark of the Covenant, note that's again tying it to the covenant. What did God put in the ark, the box of the covenant, to remind people of the covenant? He put in the tablets with a summary of the law, the Ten Commandments, chapter 10 verse five. Does this mean then that the law is that law is more important than grace, that uh, law is more important than the promises of God, that law is more important than Jesus Christ and His work on the cross? Well certainly not. The covenant is like an ancient type of peace treaty in which the great king swears to bless his people. That is a an obligation that he takes upon himself while the commandments then give the obligation of his people as to how we respond to that. Moreover, we can consider it from another angle and arrive at the same point and that is the uses of the law. Is the law contrary to grace? Is the law contrary to the Gospel, to Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ? We'll consider the uses of the law. Uh, That is, by the way, a matter that comes out particularly in the Heidelberg Catechism, the uses of the law. And we are told there, and it's a good summary of what we also find here in this passage, that the law is given to show God's people their sin. And that is how Moses uses it here, to demonstrate to the people that they did not enter into that promised land because of their own goodness and because of their own strength. They entered in despite the fact that they were sinners because God is gracious and God is powerful. And we find that in um, chapter 9 verses 4, 5 and 6. And therefore the law of God, one of its uses, is to show sinners their need of that grace, their need of mercy, their need of the Lord Jesus Christ, their need of the cross of Christ. The law is not contrary to that. It helps us to see the grace, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. It then shows us also how the Lord wants us to live in gratitude once we have received that grace. So again, it's not contrary to the grace of God. It helps us to understand and respond to the grace of God. Moreover, the law reminds God's people that God is a God to be feared and reverenced. He is not a God to be taken lightly and casually. Hence, the giving of the law amidst fire on a mountain that cannot be touched, as uh, we read in chapter 9 verse 10 and verse 15 and chapter 10 verse 4. So that we don't turn away from the grace of God, to our own devices and try to do it all in our own strength and our own power, ignoring God and being casual towards Him. In other words, grace is not to be cheapened. And if we play down the law of God, then there is a big danger that we're going to start cheapening the grace of God, if that were possible. And if we do that, we may not enjoy the covenant blessings of God. The emphasis on the importance of the Ten Commandments then upholds the emphasis on grace, both on the plains of Jericho and also today. You take that away and you risk forgetting why we need grace, why we need the Lord Jesus Christ and you risk forgetting how we should live in response to having received grace. And you see the summary of the law is especially important in this because it is the summary of the law that shows us that we need grace in every single area of life, not just in some parts. A summary of the total need for God's law as well as for God's grace. And it also demonstrates how that grace is not just to be Uh, responded to in one or two areas of life but it is to be responded to in every single area of life as summed up by the summary of the law the Ten Commandments the vital importance of keeping law and grace connected in our worship is seen from another angle here and that is the ease with which we break the law even as Christian people our second point the breaking of the law prove that Israel didn't deserve the promised land, Moses points out that their whole history up to that point was one of breaking God's commandments from way to go. So the law is here, uh, it gives a summary, you can put it this way the the summary of the Ten Commandments gives a summary of all of the failure, the vast amount of failure on the part of God's people to do what we should be doing. It, it, It did that then and it does it for us now too. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place you have been rebellious against the Lord. Verse 7. A stubborn people. Verses 6 and 13. Who provoked the Lord to wrath. Verses 7, 18 and 22. Committing sin and evil. Verse 18 and wickedness. Verse 27. They rebelled in the wilderness at Tabara. They rebelled at Masah. They rebelled at Kibroth Hata'avim. Kadesh Barnea. Just read Numbers 11, Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 1, the whole of the Pentateuch is filled with this. And even at Mount Horeb, the place you would least expect rebellion from God's people because this is the place where the Lord was speaking from. This was the place where they actually saw the fire and the the clouds and the thick gloom on the mountain and where they felt the earthquakes and heard the loud thunderous noises. And of all the places you would expect the people to obey, if anywhere, it's at this very place that you get one of the worst examples of idolatry, the golden calf. What a history of rebellion and wickedness. Even, verse 8, even at Horeb you provoke the Lord since the Ten Commandments are a summary of Israel's covenant obligation, their breaking of the law in all these places, this history, this shows that there is a history not just of breaking the law, but of breaking the covenant. And when Moses smashes the two tablets of the law, this is not Moses having a temper tantrum when he smashes the the, uh, two uh, two tablets, not just that, it's a symbolic act, that implies that what Israel has done is to smash the covenant. they smash this this um, strategy that God has given them to deal with their sin. Something so serious that the Lord pl- uh, warns them that he is uh, threatening to destroy Israel and raise up a new nation. Now perhaps you may be inclined to think of yourself and the church today as better than this, better than Israel. We don't have any golden calves in our church. I don't see any at least. And uh, perhaps we have a few gold coins uh, in our pockets, but no golden calves. Well, maybe there is a, uh, an idle TV somewhere in the house at home, but um, other than that, we certainly don't have anything on this order. Uh, none of the wild parties, I take it here, with the congregation of the kind that Israel was involved in with the Moabites, In uh, Numbers 25, though maybe a little bit too much alcohol at times. Well, it is in one sense true that the church today, and including this congregation here, that we do uh, perhaps not think of ourselves as more holy uh, in ourselves, but we do expect better behaviour, at least to some extent, because we have more help from God in a way. We have the whole of the scripture now we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There ought to be better behaviour from God's people today. And yet at the same time, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to admit that there, it really there isn't a day that goes past where we don't break one or more of these laws, or probably all of them in some way, and therefore also, in that respect, break the covenant. If, in, if not in deed, at least in thought or word. And that is coming from people who have far less reason to do so than Israel at Horeb, precisely because we have these extra helps, because we have the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know all about that now, through the completed word of God, and we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and still we do these things. Even, we might paraphrase, even in this new covenant day, you provoke the Lord point is, Israel had to place the Ten Commandments in the heart of their worship, in the Ark of the Covenant, which went into the most holy place and then ended up eventually in Jerusalem, the centre of their life of worship. You might say the centre of their life. Now we understand that we have the Lord Jesus at the heart of our worship because the most holy place pointed to him. But the point I want to make now is that the law of God also points to him. Shows us our need. Shows us how then we shall live. It points in its own way to the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us how to live that life of gratitude. It is our our constant weakness and failure that needs a summary approach to remind us of that very fact. To address that along with the promises of grace, not either or. A further role that is played by the law in our text is what we might refer to as covenant renewal, our third and final point, the renewing of the law. On the uh, edge of the promised land, that's the context of Deuteronomy, God uses his law and especially the summary of that law, the Ten Commandments, to prove to Israel that they do not deserve that land and they need his ongoing help. He reminds them of how that help came to them at Horeb through their intercessor and mediator Moses who pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great intercessor and mediator. He also reminds them of how Moses led them to act in thankfulness to God and for his grace to deal with their sinful action and smash that golden calf and grind it down to dust and throw it into the river. And then the Lord graciously rewrites and renews that law demonstrating that he is renewing the covenant with his people, the covenant that the people had smashed. And this history then leads Israel to covenant renewal as they are about to cross the Jordan. So I guess it's a little bit like a situation at school where a teacher has been has told students to do some exercises, and one of the students doesn't understand or they forget the instructions that they've been given, and they need help from the teacher. They admit they can't do it by themselves. They ask for that help. They're given that help, but what do they have to do then? Not just say, "Well, thank you very much, goodbye" to the teacher. Then they go back and they correct their mistakes, at least they're supposed to. I'm not sure how much all the, I don't know if all children actually go and do that work, but they're supposed to do that work. They go back and they correct those mistakes, hopefully with gratitude to the teacher for setting them on the right track again. And this is a kind of parallel to what's going on here that we get through, the, uh, through God's Word, we get instruction in God's uh, commandments as well as his promises, but we don't live up to those things, we break them and then God comes to us and he instructs us and sets us straight again and then we have to go back and deal with the things that we've been doing wrong, not just say, oh well thanks, goodbye and now I'm just going to keep living my life the same way I always have. You will find therefore that because of this importance of the law in covenant renewal in us, uh, being brought back close to the Lord again and also dealing with the things that separate us from Him with His help, we find, therefore, that the reading of the law becomes very important in all the later covenant renewals that you find in the Old Testament. Uh, King Josiah, with the reading of the book of the law, as it's expressed, which features heavily in the renewal, the covenant renewal of that time in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Then again, after the exile, the people came back. Ezra and Nehemiah, chapters uh, Nehemiah, chapters eight and nine. The law plays a major function. The summary of the law plays a function in covenant renewal. And when you think about it, if you, I don't know if you know much about the the uh, great revivals, um, the uh, awakenings and revivals in especially in uh, the British Isles and in America. Um, and uh, these great revivals also involve very much uh, the uh, people being warned about their sin, warned about God's judgement, and the law featured in By God's Grace, giving people a conviction of that sin that led for many to repentance and revival. So it's not just in the Old Testament that we read about these things. Is it not true, congregation, that we also need covenant renewal? In a way, that's what every service is. It is aiming for us to be uh, revived and renewed in our service to the Lord, in our gratitude to God, in our desire to turn to God through the Lord Jesus Christ to point out to us our sin, our covenant breaking, so that we then turn to our covenant head and know from him that we have forgiveness for our sins and we have renewal, not due to our own righteousness, but due to his. But also to learn that ingratitude and disobedience can rob us of our enjoyment of the covenant blessings and these things need to be dealt with in practice. We need to be renewed in our trust and gratitude for the Lord Jesus' work for us so that we may more effectively serve him in every area of life instead of disobeying him in every area of life. We need a a, a constant reminder and summary of God's law to give us a summary warning against sin, not just a partial warning. We need a summary, summary reminder of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of life, not just a partial reminder of that we need a summary reminder of our need for grateful service to him in every area of life, not just in some areas of life. And really, the bottom line is this, that the only two passages that give that summary are Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Now, I am fully aware, and I mentioned it before, uh, of the danger of uh, taking things for granted when we hear them every week. Nor can I say that it is a a law of the Medes and Persians that this law must be read every week. But I would certainly argue that it ought to be regular. It ought to be a regular and a prominent part of our worship of the living God. How to deal with the danger of taking things for granted? Well, we have to deal with that with many things in our worship services, as I mentioned. What is the best way to deal with that? Well, one way I can suggest is that uh, when that summary is read, you can vary it a little bit with some of these other passages, but it doesn't have to be a replacement, it can also be an extra reading. Read the Ten Commandments and then read another passage that will apply that or explain it in some way to make it a little bit different on different occasions use the three uses of the law to vary the emphasis with the reading of the law. That's another variation. And above all, pray for God's help that we don't take that for granted, that we don't take the Apostles' Creed for granted, that we don't take the benediction and Salutation or the Blessing of God for granted, that we don't take anything for granted, including the grace of God, which we also read fairly regularly, passages on the grace of God. We've got, to, we've got that. We face that danger in the Christian life all the time, and we do need to be aware of this and address it. And then, lastly, uh, tie this in with the sermon, tie the sermon in with the reading of the law, and vice versa, uh, because this is the way things are designed in the Reformed order of worship. It was all very deliberate. The call to worship God, calling us to worship. The votum and salutation, as we talked about this morning, we say, Lord, you've called us to worship, but we can't do that by ourselves. Lord, help us. The salutation, the Lord says, I will give you help. I promise. You have my grace and my peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the help you need. Then the law of God goes back and explains to us in detail, in a summary way, why we need that help. And then what is the purpose of the sermon? The sermon is to go back and explain in detail and in summary ways sometimes what this help is that God gives us, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So in a way the sermon is designed to answer the reading of the law that it emphasises the grace of God in Christ. Uh, With that in mind I want to um, end with a quote from uh, Abraham Kuyper. And uh, Kuiper was very much aware of these dynamics. And so please take his words in light of that. And he says this. He says, Every Sunday the voice of God from Sinai must echo in the assembly of believers. This is the only way in which the law of the Ten Commandments is imprinted on the hearts and minds of believers in such an impressive way. But it becomes part of their consciousness and becomes an inseparable part of their moral awareness. We read the Ten Commandments every week in order to imprint these things, uh, all of these things, including and especially the connection of this to the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Amen. Let us pray.